Outside the system and then some This is the mouthpiece of the natural earth forgotten At this point in time, humanity's been kept from the truth So Chinatown Radio offers the coordinates to a path out You're searching for something whole Cause what you see is real life You're watching this world unfold The truth beneath the lies Rekindling what's been stole The need to free one's mind Uncover the truth exposed So people see the light Let's shut it down so we can know It's simple, we just break it down a little bit So we can process all Make the switch and elevate yourself to conscious mode And it's beneficial we can get this concept rolling Get the future generators wanna stop the whole thing But the message thing is ready, we can start a post Taking in the simulating, getting lots of numbers Waking up the population, try to stop hypnosis Welcome to Chant It Down Radio. I'm your host, Loomis. Welcome once again. And this is episode 111, 111, special number. And welcome to back to where we deprogram from the deep program. Uh, so I didn't plan this show for the numbers, but I did plan this show for 9-11. Unfortunately, what... Uh, my guest and I were scheduled for 9-11, and our, we had a storm come in and blew out the electricity. So we're a few days later, but it's, it's all good. It's, it's interesting, and who knows what happened with this storm, with the weather we have these days. But I'm happy to do it. And so this show, uh, is, this is, this is uh, part of the mini-series, the Tell Live Vision Visions. This is part nine, and this one is the uh, musical truth, the music industry. And it's been amazing that I haven't really covered this part of our culture creation because I've been a hip-hop lyricist for a long time and known about our mind control a long time. And uh, I just never really did a show amalgamating or bringing the two together so much. But I'm glad I didn't because I couldn't think of a better person to cover the dark side of the music industry than Mark Devlin. Mark Devlin is my guest. He's a UK-based club and radio DJ and music journalist. In more recent years, he has begun speaking on radio and at events about the dark forces that have been manipulating the music industry for decades. This has led to the publication of his books, Musical Truth Volume 1 and Volume 2, also, Mark hosts a podcast called Good Vibrations and is very knowledgeable about the truth on planet Earth. I, I really enjoy his work and his passion behind it. So thank you, Mark, for coming on the show. Yeah, Loomis, thanks for having me on, brother. And you know what? Uh, the same thing happened to me the other day. Just as you were talking there uh, about 
I glanced at the counter on my recorder at this end because I'm recording the conversation. Yeah. And can you guess what the time was on the display? Was it 9-11? It was 9-11. And a couple of days ago, I recorded a sort of diatribe, a bit of a rant about 9-11, and exactly the same thing happened. I glanced down at the counter at a random point, and it was 9-11 on the clock. And this is an interesting phenomenon that I've heard of uh, over the years, where people keep getting these synchronistic connections to 9-11 when they glance at clocks and DVD counters and things like that. And uh, something else has just happened. <laughs> this is completely spontaneous and random. People might think I'm bullshitting here, but I'm really not. I've glanced at the counter again, and it's just clicked over to my birth date. And that's something that keeps happening as well. I keep looking at counters and stuff and mileometers on the, in my car, and I get my birth date. So there's something in the numbers. The universe is talking to us in some way. We've just got to interpret the message. Oh, absolutely. In fact, <clears throat> um when I did this show, started the beginning of this show, uh, back in episode 11, I did a whole show about the synchronicity of numbers and my story involving when I was recording my solo album, you know, over 10 years ago, every time I got done with recording, it was 11 after an hour, like it was 8-11 or 9-11 or 11-11. And so I did a lot of research into it and... I kind of put it together for a show, and here this show is one eleven. So, exactly, crazy. exactly. Look at how that worked out. Yeah, synchromistic, very synchromistic. I take it as affirmation from the universe that we're on the right track. When I keep seeing these numbers, I just interpret that as uh, keep going, you, you're where you need to be. <laughs> That's the message I get from it. Same here. I, I get that we are on a path. And you're that you're on the right path when you're seeing these numbers. That it's just exactly. it's an affirmation, like you said. That's well, right. You know, um, a little bit on nine eleven. I I thought I'd tell a little story here uh, regarding my day on nine eleven because it was also synchrom mystic. It was a a strange day for everyone, of course. But uh, what happened to me on nine eleven? It was my first day on a new job. So um, I was walking to work, and I put an early release CD in my Walkman, which at the time, you know, CD Walkmans, this was 2001, so didn't have any iPods yet or anything like that. So I put the CD, it was a demo, because my friend was a DJ, and he had the, uh, the album uh, by The Coup called Party Music. And uh, yeah. you probably listened to them before, right? Well, I wasn't familiar with The Coup before I started this research, and I came across that infamous album, Party Music, so I didn't know of their music before that, but I certainly know about them now. Yeah, well, they have some good truths they talk about. You know, I, it's kind of a Marxist-bent music, but it has some good messages here and there. But I was walking to work, and I'm listening to this track called Have You Thought About It Too? And um, during the walk to work, I envisioned bombs going off inside buildings, something I would never really put in my head. It just was like, what? what's going on? I don't even know why. And, you know, you could call it psychic or I guess some type of wavelength I was on. But anyway, I got to work. Nobody told me about what was going on in New York for two hours. So I'm getting a new job. I'm just kind of like, I didn't know anything is going on. I still trip on that today, just thinking that people are such uh, workaholics, they didn't even stop for a couple of minutes to talk about it to me, but when I got in the break room, I saw the 
it all going down on TV. I got home. I watched hours and hours of news, mind-boggled. And uh, not much later, I come to find out that that demo album that I was listening to, which didn't have a cover at the particular time, was the cover was brought into public scrutiny because on the cover of this album was them blowing, the coup, the group blowing up the World Trade Center with a detonator. And right. I, uh, it, it actually looked exactly like what really happened. So that was my experience right. on 9-11. And, of course, an unforgettable day for anyone. But that just, uh, that was like uh, a real head-scratcher. But, yeah. You know, there's another hip-hop album that depicts the World Trade Center Towers blowing up in exactly the way they did on 9-11. And it's J. Rue the Damager, The Sun Rises in the East, which came out, I think, 1994. So J. Rue the Damager is a <clears throat> conscious hip-hop artist, or certainly comes across that way, someone that I've greatly enjoyed over the years. You know, he comes with a lot of truth and knowledge in his lyrics, but we have to ask ourselves why there's a depiction of the scenes that we got on 9-11 on the front cover of his album seven years before it happened. You know, uh, was J. Rue himself complicit in this, or was that album artwork created by other parties within his camp without his knowledge but either way J. Rue the Damager is not someone that you'd expect to be down with the program based on his public persona you know and also Buster Rhymes put out a series of albums actually um, in the late 90s which all depicted some major apocalyptic disastrous event going off one of his albums was called When Disaster Strikes and another one was called Extinction Level Event. And I remember at the time, in the late 90s, thinking, what is Buster Rhymes' uh, uh, fixation with disastrous scenarios? Why is he putting all this into his albums, you know? But that, that would appear to be some kind of foreshadowing of what was going to happen in 9-11. So it seems certain players in the hip-hop game were in it up to their necks, whether they realised it fully or not. So uh, The Coup, I think that album, Party Music... There was a bit of an uproar about the nature of that sleeve after the events of 9-11 went down, and they were forced to redo the sleeve with a new image. And I think, if I recall, it was a couple of champagne glasses at a party or something like that yeah. to make it completely innocent. Um, but you obviously know more about that group than me. So were they a group that came with conscious sort of truth music and message music prior to that? Well, yeah, definitely, actually. They were, um, they're still around, in fact... Boots, the creator, just made a movie called Sorry to Bother You. I haven't seen it, uh, but his his take on things is, is uh, you know, kind of a, a conscious look at the struggle and why we're going through it and, it, and it targets mainly rich people. It does target the Rockefellers, and it does target some, um, you know, big government groups, but I don't really know if, at least through the music, I never really got the feeling that they know the entire big picture and it's kind of like I say kind of Marxist bent very communist sort of uh, type communist manifesto kind of stuff coming out of it but nonetheless good bits of truth came out of their music for sure I mean, there is this tactic that I refer to in my books as the disarmament tactic, and it's something I've identified in the music industry where we get served up certain acts 
and they appear to be on the side of the people in terms of messages that appear to be getting put forward in their music. So we think of them as on our side and rallying against the establishment and just like us, you know, uh, uh, giving a voice to all the problems that humanity faces. But when you do a bit of digging into the backgrounds of these groups and some of their affiliations, some of the family connections, the bloodlines that they come out of, some of the groups that they're associated with, they start to look a little bit corrupted and sullied. And I've realised that it's something that is done as a sort of military-grade tactic to put the public off their guard. So when you get a public hero or a group that appears to be articulating all your interests and all your concerns, you tend to embrace everything that they do and take on board all their messages and all their music uh, without really asking who they are or what their motivations might be. And I think what's going on in a lot of cases is these groups are deliberately appearing to be of that persuasion, whereas in fact they are doing the bidding of the industry and they're adhering to agendas and they're, you know, doing their bit in culture creation and social engineering so we've got to ask ourselves if that's what's been going on with some of these hip-hop acts who appear to be conscious message music makers but there may be more to it than we realize they might be compromised in some way and serving their corporate overlords more than we realize i'm not saying that's definitely what's going on with some of the names that i've mentioned but it's something we need to bear in mind because it's a method and uh, a tactic that I've identified as being very valid and it's rolled out generation after generation music genre after music genre right right I, I think of um, a lot of the rebellions or you could say subculture has always often been owned uh, by the or at least curved by the establishment so they can catch people from fully finding the truth oftentimes they're uh, or even bringing people down a dead end road so they don't go any further with their perspective. I, I see that quite a bit too. Right. Right. Definitely. I mean, a couple of examples that I've mentioned recently in a Facebook post were the group REM, who I've never really gone for. I've never enjoyed their music. I've always found it quite uh, whining and annoying. Exactly. But a lot of people obviously do like them. They're very popular. Um, so Michael Stipe would appear to be someone who, through his lyrics, is revealing great truths. They had the track uh, Orange Crush, which was revealing what happened with Agent Orange, this biological weapon that was used in the Vietnam War. Uh, and then you've got uh, Man on the Moon, where he's saying, if you believe they put a man on the moon. So he appears to be questioning the official story of the Apollo moon landings. So if you're a truther, you might look at all that and think, oh, well, this is a guy that knows what time it is. He's communicating that to us. But then you look into his background and you discover that he's yet another artist who comes from a military family background. We find this time and time again. The music industry is intrinsically linked to the military and the world of military intelligence. And there's other sort of family links there as well. Then there's the group Killing Joke, who people are always emailing me about and saying, oh, Killing Joke, they're the truth, man. You need to listen to their songs. They're telling it like it is. And you look into some aspects of that band and you find that Jazz Coleman, the front man, 
has made public statements about government surveillance and how we're all being spied on and he won't have a smartphone, he doesn't agree with being tracked everywhere you go. And again, you think, well, so far so good, you know, he's on our side. But then you look into his background and he turns out to have been descended from uh, an important figure in India that was involved in putting down the British uh, Empire's insurrection in India. He was one of the key figures that put was involved in that rebellion. Uh, so it's kind of establishment links, you know. And then you discover that he's into all kinds of secret society, mystery school teachings. He reveres the work of Alistair Crowley. Uh, he's into chaos magic. And there's all these other red flags. So on the one hand, you've got all these little clues that seem to indicate that this is a group that you should be listening to. But then if you're a diligent, vigilant truth seeker and you go wherever the information takes you, you've got all these little discrepancies and things that don't sit too well with you. And you're left very confused, full of cognitive dissonance, thinking, what do I make of this band? What am I supposed to make of this group? And my solution, which I've made clear in the public talks that I've been doing recently, is we've just got to let go of all these heroes. I've got a public talk titled No More Heroes. And I'm just saying, you know, anyone that served up to us in the public eye, anyone who's a celebrity, anyone who's a household name, anyone that everyone's heard of, has been placed there for a reason. There's no way anyone would have got to that level of influence if they weren't in some way serving the control system that we've got and adhering to some kind of agenda. So the only way to avoid being bamboozled and tricked and hoaxed is to throw them all out. We don't really need these people. Celebrities aren't our friends. They don't actually enrich our lives in any way. They don't actually give a shit about us. We might put them on a pedestal and follow their every move, but you think they care about any one of us? They don't. So they don't actually serve any purpose in our lives. And uh, we find out all the time that we've been deceived and they're not who we think they are. So just got to throw them all out, man. Yeah. Live without heroes. We don't need these people. Yeah, it, it's heartbreaking for a lot of people to find out that their their idol, their fame, their their hero has, has is is not who they think they are. And I, sure. I'm even willing to say, from my research, and that points to a lot of these people are often sons and daughters of intelligence agencies or military bloodlines. I'm I'm even willing to say that any musician, and most celebrities in general that are influencing society or causing trends are actually selected individuals who are brought to be these roles and never had to that's work right. from the bottom and rise to the top. I mean, that's, that, right. that's why there, there's this level where, where most never get to because they weren't brought up and groomed for these positions. There's this level that I can think of um, in my, well, we'll, we'll uh, I can think of a, a group that I was, um, that I, that, that I uh, remember one of the hardest working independent groups that I ever knew was Latirics, Latif and Lyrics Born, and also Black Alicious. Um, they had the best live show I'd seen, really. They rivaled any commercial act I'd ever seen. But they never got any bigger than big on an underground status. And it's because, well, I think one thing, they never signed to a big label, but they, they weren't these selected individuals to get far. And I know that when people, uh, as you probably have noticed in your research, it's uh, uh, when they sign to a label, it, it's a contract, which is basically an oath. And that's signing away a uh, someone as a creative individual, someone, someone that, that um, someone's creativity is, is gone because they've given it away. So 
I mean, when I had Freeman uh, on this show a while back, we talked about soul selling and how some people will sell their soul. Have have you? What have you learned about that getting into the music industry? Yeah, well, there's a very real sense in which artists sell their soul for fame and fortune. People think it's just this clever, witty kind of phrase or metaphor or whatever. And there have been movies about it as well. Uh, there was one called American Satan, which came out, I think, last year. And it was documenting this rock band, this bunch of kids that wanted to make it big as a group. And um, they had to commit a blood sacrifice. They had to kill this uh this guy that was associated with the band. And the minute that happened, they rose to great levels of success. And you see they're making a deal with this character that's supposed to be the devil. I don't believe there's a singular entity known as the devil. It's uh, metaphorical for forces of evil and the dark side of human nature. But it's played by Malcolm McDowell, who was in A Clockwork Orange back in the day. He plays the devil. And you see him facilitating this band's success. Um, And so they get all the fame and the money and the girls, the groupies, the drugs, all of that rock and roll lifestyle. But you can see the lead singer of the band is just degenerating and degrading into something less than human. He's becoming demonic in himself because the negative energy that they're surrounded by is just eating away at him. And I've seen that happen with, uh, or we certainly appear to see it happen with many major rock groups. I mean, look at Bono lately. Have you seen the state of Bono? Look at his eyes. I know we've got this story that he's got glaucoma, this this, um, eye condition whereby he needs to wear these coloured tinted glasses the whole time. And he says he's not being vain and trying to be fashionable when he wears these glasses. He's got to because of this eye condition. But if you ever see a rare picture of him without his glasses and look at his eyes, uh, that condition aside, he just seems to be degrading into, uh, you know, something less than human. What about Tony Blair? I know he's not a music guy, but look at the state of Tony Blair lately compared to the way he looked 20 years ago when he was British Prime Minister well, and he was leading. That. What's that? I haven't, I haven't seen him in public in a while. Yeah, well, uh, Tony Blair just looks a mess now. He just looks like he's rotting from the inside out. He looks like he's got no soul. And also Gordon Brown, another former British Prime Minister, he popped up in the news again this week. He's been given this role to, to come out and to start spreading propaganda messages, you know, after years of being out of the public eye. And he just looks dreadful as well. And uh, I think all these people, it's not just in music, but in the world of politics, in the world of big business, in the world of academia and science and all these different aspects of life, the key players that we have, the Pied Pipers, the gurus, are the ones that have had to sell their souls. They've had to pay a very heavy price in exchange for the level of fame and influence that they have. Uh, These are the ones that are selected for the role on the basis either of the bloodline that they come from, the family connections that they have, because they're ushered into these different roles and given these generation after generation to keep the agendas going, or the chosen ones that are selected for the roles. And in exchange for the fame and fortune that they're given, they have to lose a part of their humanity, of their spirituality. You know, we hear of these eyes wide shut style initiation parties that these people are required to attend and all manner of stuff goes on. And I would suggest that the scenes we saw in Stanley Kubrick's movie are probably lightweight compared to some of the stuff that really goes on at these parties. You hear about 
sacrifice is taking place and paedophilia and all the rest of it and all kinds of stuff that people don't really want to think about but there have been enough whistleblowers and insiders and enough documentation that's come out now to suggest that this is a very real thing and uh, we can see all these artists just starting to degrade before our eyes after a certain number of years and uh, it very rarely ends happily for them and that's what happens when you sell your soul you know you're uh, basically trading in your humanity in exchange for a few years of fame and mansions and yachts and fast cars and women and it can never be worth it <laughs> because what we're talking about here is eternity what happens to your soul after you depart this life uh, are you really going to trade off a nice mansion and uh a few champagne cocktail parties against uh, the loss of your soul for the rest of eternity. Mm -hmm. Doesn't sound like a very good deal for me. No, no, no. And yeah, I, I think um, there there is a, well, like uh, David Icke says, celebrityism. There is a almost like religious following after these celebrities and, we, and people look up to them. They, they look up to them uh, as like, this is the life you want to live, you know. Uh, that th these people on tabloids in the supermarket, and you think, oh, it must be so amazing. But what, when you when you people get to that level of success, it's actually pretty much unattainable unless you're one of those people. I I haven't figured out how anybody else gets in there, and and it's because basically the inter entertainment industry is one of the most dangerous industries for them to leave open for free expression and creative freedom. And they have right. to control all bases to make sure that you have it. You're in some type of control. I mean, ultimately, mainstream music, especially today, is extremely shallow. And I, I um, do understand that people just want to unwind and and have fun and a good time. But unfortunately, that's where they get us the most. Is in fun. They get us when we're having fun and we're coming home from a hard day's work. They're entertainment's waiting for us to, or work to absorb it and get on that shallow frequency and so um yeah the powers that that be just want us to watch mindless brain rot basically to to absorb that type of uh mentality yeah you can look at the very word entertainment and break it down and what it actually means is enter, or you could take it to be uh, a rendering of between, the French word for between, entre, uh, tame from the French verb tenir, to hold, and ment from the Latin mente mentis, meaning mind. So what it's saying is it enters and holds your mind. <laughs> That's exactly what this stuff does. And as you said, nobody's expecting to be mind-controlled when they're unwinding from a hard day at work or just enjoying some leisure time at the weekend, going to see a favorite band, going to the club, listening to a favorite album at home. That's where they get you when your guard is down. Uh, it's always targeting the subconscious mind. Your conscious mind is disengaged because you're just in woolly-headed mode, you know, and all this stuff is being absorbed by your subconscious where it's having an effect on your thoughts and your emotions and your behaviors, whether you realize it or not. People will deny it till the cows come home and say, oh, can't get me that way. No, I'm too <laughs> smart for that. But it does work that way. It's worked on me. I'm, I grudgingly accept that music over the years has had an effect on my thoughts, emotions and actions and my attitudes. I was a big fan of hip hop in the early 90s when the gangster rap genre was really big, you know, and um, 
going forward into the 90s, you had all this stuff entering into lyrics of big hip-hop songs, and it was gang-banging, criminal sort of lifestyles. And hip-hop, of course, had its critics at that time who would say, oh, this is really negative music, and it's affecting the behaviours of young people that listen to it. And back at that time, I would have denied this was the case. And I would have said these people are just... Uh, prudes and religious zealots or whatever, they don't understand the culture, they don't understand the music. Of course, this doesn't affect people's behaviour. It's just fictional scenarios or documentation of stuff that happens on the streets being put into music. It's just entertainment. It's harmless. It's fun. There's no problem. So, you know, I was had. I was mind-controlled back in those days. I know better now, but I was bamboozled. So, if I can admit that, and if I can break through it, then how many other people have been bamboozled and, and caught up in all this stuff in, in ways that they don't understand? You know, the thing you were saying about those that get to the very top of these professions and these different walks of life being selected for the roles is absolutely true. And I used to tie myself up and get all twisted out of shape for years because I wanted to be a more successful DJ. You know, I had designs on being a very well-known radio DJ and I wanted to be playing all these big clubs and festivals and become a household name myself. And it was very frustrating for me year after year to keep sending up demo tapes to Radio 1, BBC Radio 1 and 1 Extra and wanting to get on these stations and constantly getting knocked back. You know, not not this week, thanks, you know, don't worry, don't call us, we'll call you, try again next year. And I used to get so bent out of shape thinking, why is this not happening to me? And I would look up to those DJs that had made it big. Guys like Pete Tong, who's a big radio dance music DJ, and Tim Westwood, who's like the, the ambassador for hip-hop music in the UK. I want to get some more into him as, as we progress, because I've got a whole load to say about that dude. But I would look up to these guys and think, uh, you know, why why can't I be successful like them? And here I am now, having done all this research and having come to all these comprehensions about what goes on in the industry, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I didn't make it. That would have been my worst nightmare because looking at guys like Pete Tong, Tim Westwood, uh, as we're talking about DJs, the likes of Paul Oakenfold and Carl Cox, who came up in a conversation I had with somebody this morning, uh, Paul Van Dyke, this trance DJ, who I'm going to be doing a, an exposure on shortly. Uh, all these people, they're phenomenally successful in their field. They're the leaders of their respective genres. We could throw David Rodigan in there as well, who's the prime sort of reggae DJ in the UK. But all of them, it's so clear to see. They've sold out, they're doing the bidding of the control system, and their careers have been facilitated for them. There's not a single one of them that has got there through working really, really hard, playing a few gigs and just hustling away, crossing their fingers for good luck, and it just happens to all work out for them. doesn't work that way for any of them. And really, it's not somewhere you want to be because these people are constantly fulfilling agendas. When there's an event that needs one of these figureheads to be the public face of it, just yesterday, for instance, there was a big gig that took place at Stonehenge, right, in England. And it was apparently a small private gathering for about 50 people. And Paul Oakenfold DJed. And I've been told that Carl Cox was present there as well. When have you ever heard of Paul Oakenfold or Carl Cox, given that they fill stadiums of like 50, 100,000 people at a time and all these massive festivals, playing a gathering for 50 people at Stonehenge? Now, Stonehenge is a mystical kind of monument. It's linked with sun worship. So if these two have been wheeled out to play an event, 
it's a fairly safe bet that it's some kind of ritual. It's got some kind of occult overtones to it. So if they want to have this kind of event, they want somebody high profile to attract the people along or to give it some relevance. So they wheel out Paul Oakenfold and Carl Cox. Carl Cox plays the Burning Man Festival every year oh. out in the Nevada desert, which is absolutely steeped in occult imagery, dark oh, yes. occult, I should say, not good stuff. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's a massive ritual, a massive energy harvesting ritual. So he's wheeled out for that. So it seems whenever they've got one of these events uh, and they need one of these individuals to head it up, they just put in the call, you know, Oakenfold, you've got to be at Stonehenge next week. Oh, right. OK, yeah. Carl, we want you there, too. Oh, right. OK. So these people, I'm sure, are to a very large extent just doing what they're told. And they never get to retire. Have you noticed this? You know, the key players, these lifetime actors, as I refer to them as, these careers just go on forever. Look at Mick Jagger, still out there performing at the age of 70, God knows what. Paul McCartney, uh, whoever he really is, uh, still out there doing tours. He's just dropped a new album at the age of 76, doing all these interviews. Who would want to be doing that at that age? Would you not just want to retire and take it easy and kick back? But these people are so valuable to their controllers that they're just used year after year, decade after decade. So, you know, don't expect Pete Tong or Carl Cox or Tim Westwood to be retired anytime soon because there's a lot more shelf life they're going to want to get out of these dudes when you're a lifetime actor you really are serving the system for your whole life oh yeah and I, and I think that if they were to try to retire early or quit you might find one of these funny little these funny deaths sudden deaths happen or something like that yeah. Well, Avicii wanted to retire, didn't he? Avicii mentioned that he was all burnt out and he'd had enough of the industry and he just wanted to get out of, you know, get away from it all. And we all know what happened there. Yeah. Well, hey, going back a little bit, you mentioned something that <clears throat> spurred something inside of me about um, the uh, the gangster influence in hip hop. Uh, I, I guess I'm sort of I I count my blessings and I guess I'm sort of lucky because my friend was an underground DJ. And I got out of listening to mainstream hip hop before it went real bad, and 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 I ended up following more underground artists and becoming friends with underground artists. So to me, I feel that the heart of hip hop, it was alive until probably 1995, 96, about that time, and then everything good went underground or never made it above ground from then on. And when, when I started doing hip hop in the early 90s. I was a, I was at least looking up to artists who were creatively advanced. I've and and I'm I'm grateful for that. So I never got that influence. I didn't get influenced by Jay Z or even Biggie or Tupac so much. I mean, I did have some of that early gangster rap influence through like N.W.A. and people like that. But um, so I guess my journey has been different through this. But um, I watched. So much influence come from artists like Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Wu-Tang, Tupac, Biggie, Eminem, you know, all those big artists. And people emulated them so much. And the worst part is that they they copied the ideals of these people, and that meant mostly bad morality. I mean, because none of these people I mentioned are people you'd you'd want hanging out with your grandmother or, or your young children. And that's when I really started to notice culture creation. Of course, I didn't have the knowledge that I do now, but I noticed how much influence people got from music, people adopting the gangster mentality that was 
unauthentic to their upbringing. A lot of these people, they didn't even need to be that way. They weren't brought up that way, but they became these characters. And uh, they act like them, talked like them, dressed like them. And this is what I, I, I also call the wannabe gangster movement of America. And I'm sure it, it swept into the UK. But I watched it sweep through small towns, debasing society. And so that's what I noticed as I was being enlightened by more creative, high-caliber hip-hop, it seemed like the rest of the world was obsessed with shallow music and low vibrational stuff, and I really started to notice it right around 95, 96. Yep. Well, I certainly concur with your timeline there, because I would pinpoint that time as when hip-hop took a big dive in terms of the standard of mainstream material. Of course, there's been underground music all along that is still credible and still puts out great messages and there's slamming productions and all of that, but you've just had to really hunt hard to find that stuff since about 96, 97. I play a few of those tracks on my radio show, so the radio show that I do now is mainly Soulful House, but I do pepper it with a few underground hip-hop tracks, and I have to you know, search really hard for these and go to some places that not everyone has access to, to to get these records on the radio. But in terms of the mainstream stuff, yeah, about 96, it all started to change. You had uh, Puffy, you know, Sean Puffy Coombs and all his productions coming through that were glorifying this champagne bling bling sort of lifestyle. Jay-Z broke through with Reasonable Doubt in 96. That was actually a, a very good album, but from the second album onwards, his agenda became clear. He was glorifying, you know, the criminal sort of thug life and talking about drug dealing and slinging crack and stuff. And at the same time, uh, getting all this champagne bling sort of lifestyle in there as well. And then you had artists like DMX and Ja Rule that came out with this kind of thug imagery. They just glorified, uh, reveled in this uh, image of being street thugs and stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, there was a definite degradation that took place around those times. I just wanted to mention something about the Wu-Tang Clan, because you brought them up there. Yeah. And uh, I've got a small section on them in my book. I just want to read a part of it, if, if you're cool with that. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I uncovered some stuff about Wu-Tang Clan, uh, who I always used to like. That's another group whose music I uh, lapped up when they first emerged. But it's clear yeah. that there's a lot more to know about the Wu-Tang Clan and where they came from very strange stuff. So let me just start by reading this bit. I've mentioned where the fingerprints of banksters, secret societies, religious doctrines and cults have already presented themselves. It's never too much of a surprise to find traces of mind control and organized crime lurking in the same vicinity. And so it is with the Wu-Tang Clan. So I'll go on to say documentation from the FBI relating to Wu-Tang Clan's extracurricular activity was obtained under a freedom of information request in 2011 and has been made public on the internet. One paper dated 8th of the 4th, 99, states, information was received from the New York Police Department about criminal activity being conducted by members of the Wu-Tang Clan organization on Staten Island, New York. Uh, The detectives have documented that the Wu-Tang Clan is heavily involved in the sale of drugs, illegal guns, weapons possession, murder, carjackings, and other types of violent crime. Uh, And also... Uh, there was the death of this drug dealer uh, that was pinned on a couple of members of the Wu-Tang Clan as well. Uh, it goes on to address the murder of Robert Johnson, a.k.a. Pooh, on Staten Island in December '97, claiming that this was ordered by somebody within the Wu-Tang Clan. Uh, we also have the very strange business of 
old dirty bastard, old DB, Russell Jones, who was a member of the Wu-Tang Clan. And he died in, I believe it was 2004, in very strange circumstances. Another of these sort of unexplained music star deaths that people just tend to write off after a while and it just gets forgotten. But uh, he spent some time before that in interviews talking about how he was being tailed by the FBI. And in his track, Got Your Money, he's even got the line, FBI, don't you be watching me. And I've heard an interview where he was on a phone-in show on, I think it was Hot 97, or certainly a hip-hop station in New York. And he's chatting to these callers. And he says to this one caller, when they get into this conversation, if I turn up dead, the CIA did it. And the guy on the phone starts laughing, thinking he's joking. And then Dirty says, no, no, I'm serious. If I turn up dead, the CIA did it. And pretty soon after that, guess what? He turns up dead. There's also a very interesting story that I got from Ed Opperman, who's a private investigator and he's a radio show host. He's had me on his show a couple of times. So we started talking about the Wu-Tang Clan on this one occasion. And Ed told me that he used to sell mobile phones from a store on Staten Island, New York. And he said one day, Method Man of the Wu-Tang Clan came in to uh, get a mobile phone and he was required to present some ID, as is the case when you take one of these things out. And Ed said the only ID that he could produce was uh, uh, an identity card from a mental health institution showing that he was an inmate in a, a mental health hospital. Well, so huh. isn't, isn't that interesting when you factor it in with all these other unsavory aspects of the, the Wu-Tang Clan? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I always kind of notice some dark undertones... I never investigated it, but I think the RZA was involved with a group called the Gravediggers, and right. I kind of think there was some probably dark occult undertones with that album. I never really have picked it up since the 90s, but I would assume it probably has something to do with that. Well, yeah. RZA is a stated five percenter, so we get into this uh, five percent nation, nation of gods and earths, as it's also known. It's kind of a semi-religious mystery school secret society, I guess, which started out as a spin-off of the nation of Islam. Maybe we can get some more into that whole thing. But yeah. uh, RZA is a stated five percenter. He's also rumoured to be a Freemason. Uh, I interviewed him once, and I asked where the name came from. His real name is Robert Diggs. And I said, you know, what's, what's the RZA? Where did that come from? And he said it stands for Ruler Zigzag Zig Allah. And it put me in mind of Rakim Allah, you know, the rapper Rakim. Yeah. Uh, his name is said to be Rakim Allah. So we've got these uh, Islamic overtones coming into some of these names. And it all ties back into the nations of gods and earths also known as the Five Percenters. And there's a huge number of prominent hip-hop artists who have pledged allegiance to this society and have stated that they're a part of it and they follow its doctrines. Among them are Rakim, Big Daddy Kane, LL Cool J, Brand Nubian, Guru of Gangstar, Paul Righteous Teachers, who put out a track called God's Earths and 85ers. Buster Rhymes, A Tribe Called Quest, Lakim Shabazz, The Wu-Tang Clan, Jay-Z, Nas, Erica Badu, Jay Electronica, and Immortal Technique. So you can see there's a massive array of huge names there. And it seems to be the case that if you're going to be 
a majorly influential hip-hop act, it's kind of expected that you're going to pledge allegiance to the 5% nation. It's the same way as in reggae music. So many of the artists, by default, their de facto religious leanings are towards the Rastafarian movement. And they talk about Jar and uh, Haile Selassie and stuff in so many reggae tracks. It's the expected, accepted religion of that movement. In country and Western, it's Christianity, at least on the surface. And in hip-hop, it's definitely the Nations of Gods and Earths, which is tied in with the Nation of Islam. So the Nations of Gods and Earths was started with this, uh, started by this guy known as Clarence 13X Smith, also known as Clarence the Father or Allah the Father. And he was originally a member of the Nation of Islam in the days of Elijah Muhammad under his leadership. And uh, Clarence broke out of that organization and established the 5% Nation in 1964. And uh, he was a former student of Malcolm X. So it turns out that many of the doctrines that come out of the nations of gods and earths have been adopted as a staple part of hip-hop culture. So, for instance, the cypher, you know, this tradition within hip-hop culture where uh, a bunch of MCs will stand around in a circle and one of them will go in the center of the circle and uh, bust a freestyle rhyme, you know, start rapping, and then he steps aside and somebody else goes into the circle. Well, that's part of uh, the religious rituals that take place within the nations of gods and earths. You've also got this thing in hip-hop in so many tracks where they end by saying peace uh, or or when people are going to depart and, you know, as as an alternative to saying goodbye, they just say peace. That's also part of the Nations of Gods and Earths uh, teachings. That's a way that the members used to greet each other. They'll also sometimes call each other God because their teachings uh, suggest that all the individual members are individuated aspects of the divine, of the Godhead, the Most High. So they see themselves as their own gods. So that's why you hear them say, Peace God. And they also say sometimes, Peace Son, or refer, refer to each other as Son. And they're not saying that as in sun, S-O-N, they're saying it as in the sun in the sky, S-U-N, because sun worship, solar worship, is a part of the doctrines of this group as well. So all these different uh, aspects of hip-hop culture come directly out of the nations of gods and earths, which is something I only realised quite recently in recent years. I've spent all these years hearing these tracks where they're calling each other sun and saying peace and stuff like that. And this is where it all comes from. So... When you factor in other elements as well, such as the Zulu Nation, the Universal Zulu Nation, which was Africa Bambata's organization going way back to the 1970s, that evolved evolved and morphed out of the Bronx River organization, also known as the organization, and a street gang out of the Bronx called the Black Spades. So it seems, you know, one group kind of morphed into another and we ended up with the Universal Zulu Nation headed up by Bambata. Africa Bambata, uh, we've been forced to kind of look at him in a slightly different light in recent years following the allegations that came out in 2016 that he'd been a predatory paedophile that preyed on young boys and sexually molested several of them, according to uh, testimonials from former members of the Universal Zulu Nation. So that group was heavily steeped in symbolism and imagery, much of which hints at Freemasonry. 
many of the, the rituals and the symbols that they use have ties going back into Freemasonry. Uh, the Zulu Nation and Africa Bambata's Soul Sonic Force, when they're on stage doing many of their shows, you see them flashing up certain symbols, including what's known as the horned hand sign, you know, the so-called devil horns, the Baphomet sign. And they're making pyramid signs as well. And some of the garb and regalia that they have at their shows hints heavily at Freemasonry as well. So when you consider that, and you consider the incredible influence that Africa Bambata and the Zulu Nation, and also Cool Herc, who was an associate of Bambata, those two are credited with being the founding fathers of hip-hop culture and, uh, you know, the whole genre. And then you throw uh, Grandmaster Flash into the mix, who's credited with having invented turntablism, or is the, you know, the granddaddy of turntablism techniques. Isn't that an interesting name when you come to think about it? Grandmaster Flash. And then you've got Grandmaster Melly Mel coming out of the Furious Five. And uh, all these other uh, names that seem to hint at Freemasonry, because you have Grandmasters in Freemasonry. So has there been something going on here right since the very early days of hip-hop culture in the 1970s coming out of the Bronx with these three prominent figures being the uh, leaders and the Pied Pipers and the gurus of that whole scene. And then you throw the Nations of Gods and Earths thing into the mix, which is mystery school, secret society, ritualistic doctrines. Suddenly we've got a whole narrative running through the entire history of hip-hop, which is rather different to what we thought was there before. Wow. So this is... This is some heavy material that yeah. I've had to really try and wrap my head around in recent times. Wow, you just put a whole new picture into my head. That's that's uh, definitely a, a good possibility. I forget now, the African American uh, Freemason Lodge is a different lodge than the white Freemasons. I forget what they call it. Uh, well, there's an organization called the Boule, which is for black members. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's another, yep. And there's another name, too. I forget what it's called. But anyway, you, yeah, you just you just linked a whole new picture. And I always knew that there was some kind of, uh, something bigger to that whole nation of Islam that just swept through hip-hop so, so much. And I was like, what's that all about? You know, and I never, I never really thought deeper into it just than just being an uh, offshoot of, of, of uh islam but yeah uh that's yeah yeah i mean the nation of islam stuff was uh heavily involved as well uh besides the nations of gods and earth the five percent stuff which is slightly different so the doctrines of the nation of islam were pushed by the likes of public enemy and brand right. nubian ex-clan uh ice cube got into uh that whole thing for a short period as well in the early 90s where he declared himself to have become a muslim and he was pushing all that stuff and so many other groups as well it was present in the uh native tongues movement that came out Cool DJ Red Alert was kind of uh, the figurehead for that. He was a DJ that promoted all these artists that were down with this Native Tongues movement, which was supposed to be taking it back to African spirituality and bringing all that stuff through conscious rhymes and stuff. That's where groups like Della Soul and a tribe called Quest and Queen Latifah, Moni Love, Black Sheep, Stetsasonic, they all came out of that movement. But uh, I think there was probably more to know about that as well. And the thing about religious or spiritual movements is that there's nothing wrong with those per se, of course, as long as it's being used for positive purposes and to genuinely uplift 
and enrich the lives of those people that get involved with it. And as long as the individuals that are uh, involved in them have made that conscious decision for themselves rather than having been coerced down that route by some kind of pressure, you know. And also, as long as the artists that are putting out these messages are walking the talk and living these kind of lives themselves. So, you know, you could think of a group like the Wu-Tang Clan. They've consistently incorporated mystical and metaphysical symbology, which is straight out of the Gods and Earths rule book, into their music and into some of their artwork and things like that. So you think, so far, so good. These are spiritual dudes that are trying to communicate these messages. But then you hear them rapping about murder, mutilation, selling drugs, toting guns, and overall criminal lifestyles. And also, they seem to be involved in criminal activity in their spare time as well. So they're not walking the talk. And so when you've got individuals apparently putting out uplifting spiritual messages, but who aren't exhibiting that kind of behavior and leading by example in the way they conduct themselves, the whole thing just becomes meaningless, or it becomes an agenda, more accurately. Right. You talked about, um, you talked about the devil's horn, throwing up the devil's horn, and that kind of just brought me into one of the last commercial hip-hop groups that I held on to for a while was Outkast. And it later, it I mean, a lot later, it took me a while to figure it out, but one of the members, one of his his other names, Big Boy, his other, one of his other names is Sir Lucius Leftfoot. And co- coming from the left-hand path, Lucius, and I mean, I can go on a rant with that. I mean, you find that throughout Hollywood movies, such as the the newer Batman series, well, newish, uh, Lucius Fox, Fox being 666 in Gematria. Uh, also, right. in the newest Incredibles movie, uh, the second one, we find out that the superhero, Fro- the Frozone, I think his name is, who freezes people, his name is Lucius. So, just going off on a rant, you see huh. that throughout. But yeah, um, there, there's all this... this Tons of celebrities showing one eye, or then you get into uh, the group TLC, Lisa Left Eye, who had a very strange death. And yep. so, I mean, in your research, where does one get involved, or are these people just told these things they know nothing about, or are they full on believers in what they're doing? Is there a line? Well, Yeah, I think there's grades to it. I think certain artists are entirely down with the program and uh, they understand exactly what they're doing. Somebody like Jay-Z, for example. I don't think Jay-Z is some ignorant stooge. I think he absolutely knows what he's doing and the effect he's having on culture. And he's always struck me as someone that's entirely down with it and and willing, you know, uh, is quite a happy participant. Uh, He just wanted the fame and the the fortune that much. He was that hungry for it. Let me just, before I forget, I just want to pick up on Outcast, who you just mentioned, Andre 3000, the the front man of Outcast. Now, he is somebody whose mother died very suddenly in some strange circumstances quite recently. And we find this quite a lot with artists. Bruno Mars is somebody else. Right about the time that Bruno Mars' career was taken off, his mother just happens to die. Mm 
And of course, we had that with Kanye West many years ago. He was famously very close to his mother, Donda, and she died on a surgeon's table when she went in for some cosmetic surgery. And this evidently affected Kanye in a, a very harsh way. And it was the inspiration for his very dark album, 808s and Heartbreak. Uh, so there is this suggestion that there's a very real thing called ritual sacrifice, blood sacrifice, which goes on in the industry in exchange for engineered levels of success. And an artist, before they're elevated up to the next level, is required to uh, put somebody up for sacrifice that is close to them. I know that sounds outrageous to people the first time they hear it, but do a bit of digging before you throw it out on the grounds that it can't possibly be true. Do the research and look at the large number of artists who have suffered the deaths of somebody very close to them, whether it's their mother, whether it's a brother. Uh, Rihanna, I think just after Christmas last year, lost a cousin in some very sudden and strange circumstances. Dr. Dre lost a brother and going back a half-brother right around the time that he hit stratospheric levels with his career. There'll be many other examples as well when people really dig into it. Jay-Z lost a cousin who died in a car that he bought, and he actually addresses this in his track The Lost Ones, talking about how guilty he feels that his cousin died in a car that he bought. But I think there's probably more to this whole dynamic when you really start to look at it and you consider some of the artists that were involved. Another thing about Andre 3000 is that he was in a relationship with Erica Bardu, who becomes a very interesting artist to look at. I've got a little extract from my book here. Let me just read this out. Uh, Erica Bardu's place remains as open for discussion as her overall image and style always have. She was the girlfriend of the aforementioned Common, So this is the rapper that used to be known as Common Sense. He became Common in the midst of further inter-industry relationships with Andre 3000 of Outkast, with whom she had her first son, and fellow Texas-born rapper the DOC, with whom she had a daughter. She then had a third child with equally enigmatic rapper Jay Electronica. So she seems to have been passed around the hip-hop industry like a bloody rag doll. being linked up with all these different rappers and having kids with them so uh, that's a whole different matter in itself but going back to your question about how willing or knowing some of these people are in terms of what they get involved with I think the high level players the household names, the, the ones everyone's heard of, know what's going on but there is evidence to suggest that others are tricked into it and they sign contracts not fully realising what it is they're bringing themselves into. We've had some examples of artists who seem to be expressing great regret of what it is they've got themselves embroiled in. One that springs to mind is DMX. He had a track on his album towards the tail end of the night is called Damien. And this is him hinting at some kind of demonic possession that's taken place within him. So he's got this alter ego who he refers to as Damien, and he's having conversations with him. It's like he's got this split personality. You can hear Damien sort of whispering in his ear and coercing him into doing terrible things, uh, killing people and adopting criminal lifestyles and stuff like that. And the other side of DMX is full of great regret that this has happened. And he says at the end of the track, I can see now ain't going to be nothing but trouble ahead. And then Damien crops up on a future album where he's revisiting the whole thing and just giving the impression that he's got himself into something terrible that he didn't realise at the time and now there's no way out. 
We've had the same thing from Eminem in terms of certain comments that he's made in interviews and in some of his tracks where he seems to be expressing great regret of the fact that he's literally sold his soul and he knows he's not getting it back. And Eminem's music is still, of course, as degraded and as debased and as toxic as ever because he's obviously just being instructed to keep putting this stuff out and he's really got no choice in the matter. So I think in some cases, artists are tricked and coerced and manipulated into these kind of deals. And once you're in, there's no way of getting out. You can't just say, I want to leave. Lauren Hill tried that. Lauren Hill obviously signed herself up for a very restrictive career in the industry when she was with the Fugees and then she signed a solo deal with Columbia Records, which is one of the most satanic record labels out there. She put out her debut album 20 years ago, actually, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill in 98, and it was very uplifting stuff. There was some great message music on that album. Uh, but shortly afterwards, she started making public statements about the true nature of the industry and how... Artists are nothing more than corporate slaves that are owned by their corporations. And she was made to suffer because of that. She got uh, demonized in the media. They were starting to concoct all these stories about how she was racist and how she'd made all these comments about wanting white people to die and stuff like that. And then she got hit with this massive tax bill from the IRS, which absolutely smacked of a stitch up. Uh, and it was kind of a way of getting her back in line and saying, you don't get to go out there and make statements off your own back. You do what you're told. Here's a little reminder of who owns your ass. Here's a little reminder of how you need to stay in line, because next time the warning won't be as friendly. That's how I interpreted that whole thing. And of course, you do get artists that step out of line from time to time and do make statements that appear to be coming off their own back and it appears to be them rallying against what it is they're a part of and revealing secrets about how the industry operates three names that spring to mind would be michael jackson prince and george michael and isn't it interesting that it all ended the same way for those three yes yes i mean what is it with the 80s i mean personally i feel that it was like the first decade they could carry out a bigger mind control through music because well, okay, you, you could go to the 60s, which were huge, and we can go there if you want, but MTV started in the 80s, and music videos got big, and I feel like there's a deeper mind control uh, that came through the 80s, and look, now we have all these deaths, that, uh, Michael Jackson, Prince, what about Whitney Houston, and, and her daughter both dying in a bathtub? I mean, right. That that's... Aren't more people, like, scratching their head, like, wait a minute, they both died in the bathtub? I've never known anybody who's died in a bathtub. I don't know about you. Right. I mean, exactly. I, I guess it can happen, but <laughs> it's pretty weird. So, yeah, well, you know, the, the thing about Bobby Christina is that after her mother, Whitney Houston, was discovered dead in a bathtub, and by the way, Bobby Christina was discovered unconscious or unresponsive in a bathtub in the very same hotel suite that her mother died in 24 hours earlier. That's right. Uh, there's this very bizarre story of a guy that had the hotel room below Whitney Houston's suite. In the middle of the night, he was woken up by water cascading through his ceiling. And he went to reception to complain about it. And they said, oh, you know, leave it with us, sir. And it turns out that all the water was coming from the bathtub in Whitney Houston's suite above, which was overflowing 
and was going through the floor. And this was when Bobby Christina was discovered in the bathtub. So after her mother died, she's said to have been terrified of baths, as you might expect, and she never took another bath. So friends said she would only take showers. You'd never catch her going in a bath. Then what do we hear? I think it was 18 months or so after the death of Whitney Houston, or um, I might be wrong with the timeline, but whatever point it was, Bobby Christina is discovered dead in a bathtub in her home. Was she doing in a bathtub when she was terrified of taking baths? There's another good question for people to consider. Yeah, and it, it, it doesn't seem like it would take much of an inquisitive mind for someone to go, wow, well, wait a minute, why? And then just open this kind of door into this bigger world. Uh, I think that's where your, your books come in really nicely because your books are uh, good for anybody to pick up. It sounds like more than just someone that is advanced knowledge of this. I think it's good for any novice to open up and get right in and start understanding this corrupt industry. Yeah, well... The first book certainly is entry-level material, so somebody could pick that book up with absolutely no prior knowledge of the inside workings of the industry, and I feel I walk them through, step by step, the whole story. So I start right at the beginning, I talk about my own years of ignorance, and how I was in a mind-controlled trance, and I bought the official version of everything, and then I explain how I came to wake up to some uncomfortable truths about what goes on in the world, and then I go right back to the very early days of the industry at its inception, and talk about how right from the very start you can see the connections to the world of military intelligence, and you can see that some of the prominent record labels that started out, like Decca, Parlophone, RCA, EMI, thorny mi have direct links into the world of the military and actually many of these record labels started out doing research on behalf of the military into radio programs and sonics and things like that broadcast transmissions and then they morphed into these record companies and started putting out these big acts like cliff richard and elvis presley and the beatles and that was how the modern industry as we know it got started with these very direct uh, links back into these worlds. And you can look at, again at the family backgrounds of many of the prominent artists and you find direct links into, into the world of the military. And if it's not that, then you often find aristocratic bloodline links going back several generations. And these people just happen to crop up as prominent artists. So in the first book, I'm walking people through all of this and uh, just unfolding the story stage by stage and if anyone gets to the end of the book still believing that the world is this nice, lovely, fluffy, friendly place and there's nothing nefarious going on, then there's nothing more I can tell you. <laughs> I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't say any more than I've said in that book to try and get across the message that there's far more to know about this world and specifically the music industry than we're in train to believe. If you're still in ignorance and denial at the end of that book, then good luck, you're going to need it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, with the uh, going back to what you were saying about these influential stars, um, you just brought something to mind. You know, it's kind of down the rabbit hole a little bit, but uh, with this kind of planning of culture culture creation i i even sometimes think that these generations were planned down to style color coding 
and yes. what I call decade planning. I mean, if you look yeah. at the decades since TV and the culture creators' music has taken over, look at how distinctly different the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, 80s, and 90s were in clothing and trends. I mean, could it simply be just an organic evolution, or is this actually down to, like, I mean, the 70s, everything was brown. Uh, the 60s, there's a lot of yellowish colors. and So, I mean, is, is this all planning way far back? Well, I think it is. And one thing you come to discover when you really dig into this research is that the controllers have incredible levels of, of patience and of forward projection. Right. And they do plan their moves, not just years in advance, but decades in advance. They know where they want to take culture in 20 or 30 years from now. They play the long game and they're very disciplined at staying on track and making sure it all gets carried out. And you're right, there is an agenda that gets rolled out decade by decade. And with the dawn of a new decade, the uh, culture shifts take on a slightly different uh, shape. So we had rock and roll in the 1950s coming out of sort of American rhythm and blues. Uh, Bill Haley and the Comets, I guess, kicked that whole thing off really in the public eye with Rock Around the Clock, 1955. Then you had the likes of Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and uh, 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 Buddy Holly and all these acts coming through, Eddie Cochran, all those sort of acts. Then you had the dawn of the 60s. And right at the start of the 60s, the Beatles break through in Britain and then later in America. And then you've got the Rolling Stones and you've got bands like The Who and The Animals and The Kinks and all the Merseybeat bands, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and all these groups coming out of Liverpool. And that's something that was very distinctive to the 1960s. And then towards the end of the 60s, you had all the counterculture hippie stuff, all these groups coming out of Laurel Canyon, and the Grateful Dead, and Jefferson Airplane, and all these uh, you know hippie sort of right. LSD psychedelic groups, and the emergence of Pink Floyd in, in Britain. Then the 60s gives way to the 70s. The whole counterculture thing pretty much died a death as the decade of the 60s came to a close. And then the Beatles were completely finished by 1969. You know, they were very much a product of the 60s. And as 1970 clicked in, that was all done. Now it was time for the aftermath of the seeds that had been sown by the counterculture in the 60s, sex and drugs and rock and roll, and these relaxed and some would say debased moral systems where it's all about uh, sexual emancipation and drugs everywhere and uh, just living these decadent kind of lifestyles. So you see that coming through with groups like Led Zeppelin, and uh, you have all these groups like Deep Purple and Black Sabbath coming through in the early 70s. Then you have the emergence of David Bowie and Elton John and guys like that, and then by the tail end of the 70s, you've, you've had punk and New Wave coming in. Then you go into the 80s, and pretty much all the styles that were big in the 70s die a death as you have all this... Wonderfully colourful, shiny pop music coming through, very much linked to the emergence of MTV. So you've got groups like Duran Duran and all these new romantic groups making all these lavish, uh, stylistic pop videos for the MTV generation. You've got the new ro romantic sound, you've got synth pop yep. coming all the way through the 80s. By the time the 80s has ended, those styles are starting to wane and you've got dance 
music starting to come in, you know, the acid house scene out of the UK, house music coming out of Chicago. Then you get the 90s, and you've got uh, new styles like uh, trance, techno, hard house, all coming out of dance. You've got drum and bass, that whole scene emerges out of the UK. You've got grunge over there in the States. Then it's the 2000s, and then you start to get all this vacuous, insipid pop music. 2010s comes along, you've got the likes of Miley Cyrus, and Katy Perry and Lady Gaga making all this crap, shite, mind-numbing, spirit-crushing pop music. Uh, and also towards the end of this decade, here we are, 2018, you've got some other obvious things coming in, like the transgender agenda, the transhumanist agenda. These things are very clear to people that are paying attention. So it seems that as a new decade starts, there's something psychological about that reboot, that reset, you know, 1969 going into 1970, 1979 going into 1980. When you get a new decade with a new number, uh, people seem to be ready for the culture to change and to have all these different styles and sounds coming in. So I'm kind of dreading what's going to happen in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> in uh, not, not much more than a year now. Uh, in 2020, I'm pretty sure that the agenda is going to get reshaped and rebooted in some other way. And it's already so debased and so degraded and so toxic and so satanic in terms of music production styles, in terms of what's going into lyrics, in terms of the artists that we've got and the social engineering agendas that they're pushing. Push Every time you think you've plumbed the depths of the cesspit and you've gone as deep as it's possible to go, they find new ways of taking it even further. I mean, you would think Miley Cyrus on stage, dressed as a baby with a baby's pacifier, touching herself up and simulating masturbation is as far as it's possible to debase and degrade things. But I'm sure they've got some other tricks up their sleeve. And as the 2020s come along, they're going to take things even further. Sorry to say. Unfortunately. My friend, I mean, going back to hip-hop, my friend, hip-hop now is, is complete shit. Uh, I don't even want to talk about how I used to be part of the music because I don't want to be associated with what is now. But my friend me forwarded me, me a video. Of, I don't pay attention at all anymore. So I'm just like totally hit floored by a video of Nicki Minaj and six someone, I don't even know, this guy that's all dressed like a rainbow, and and they're they're like playing patty cake in on in the video and it's all these rainbow colors. Well I happened to be on a ferry and the the sea was really rocky. I got seasick and that aided me to vomit. That actually physically made me feel like, okay, it's okay to vomit now. I've seen that and I'm I'm ready to totally puke. And so um, that's how bad it is now. And mumble rap, I mean, it's like, oh. it, I don't even, I don't even want to SoundCloud rap. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. So I can't imagine where, what kind of debasing could get any further, but I'm sure it's up their sleeves, that's for sure. Yeah, it's just fucking unbelievable, man. Oh. And they're just get, they're getting kids with this stuff. Like I said earlier, guys of our age, they've written us off. That they're not trying to control us anymore because we're done. Yeah. You know, they want you when you're young. They want to shape your belief systems and your uh, ideologies and your spirituality, and they want to get you while you're impressionable and you can be shaped and molded easily. And that's young people. That's why all this garbage 
is just aimed at kids who don't have any point of reference. They don't remember better times. They've got no recollection of the 90s and uh, all these great sample-based beats that used to be out there and all these fantastic productions from Large Professor and DJ Premier and all these great producers that used to put out beats, you know. Now it's all satanic garbage. It's demonic sonics, as I call to it, as I refer to it. And this stuff that's out now, and like you, I don't refer to it as hip-hop, you know. It's trap, it's SoundCloud rap, it's mumble rap. It bears no relation to everything that went before in the art form. And it just makes me panicky when I hear it. If I'm unfortunate enough to be in the vicinity of somewhere that's playing this stuff, i just got to get out of there, really. You know, it, it just makes me want to exit the area because it just sounds so disgusting and so unnatural and so repellent to me. And yet, you've got kids that will go to club nights and go to concerts and spend the entire evening absorbing this stuff. And they think it's just great. You've got radio shows now like Tim Westwood. I wanted to get back round to this dude because yeah. he is the ultimate Pied Piper. He is a great example of a manufactured guru. I've got no doubt about this now. I used to look up to this guy. In the 90s, he was a big inspiration to me. I used to go to a lot of his gigs. I used to listen to all his radio shows. And to be fair, his radio shows were amazing back in the 90s. It was real deal material. Uh, he was playing incredible music. But he's just allowed himself to be swept along with the way the whole genre has degenerated and he's now 60 years of age he's going to be 61 next month and he's still coming with all this swagger and all this street talk and all this bullshit making out like he's some kid from the ends you know that's down with all this stuff and it's just so embarrassing watching a grown man that is old enough to be the grandfather of these kids that he's playing this music to uh down with all this garbage and he's still promoting all this shit all this mumble rap you know he had an interview with this guy six nine do you know that dude that's the one who was in the video with uh Nick, Nicki minaj i mean right right that, that's what Aiden yeah i mean th this guy just looks like a, a fucking demon to me yeah his real name's daniel hernandez his artist name is six nine he's actually been charged with uh the sexual assault of a minor having underage sex with with a girl so he's technically a child rapist and yet he's out there as an artist putting out records doing concerts tim westwood did an interview with him the other week he's promoting his material so i'm thinking what are you doing giving a platform to garbage like this that is poisoning the minds and the souls of young people isn't it notable tim westwood never got married doesn't have any kids but he doesn't mind poisoning and degrading and debasing the minds of other people's children and you find this so often as well. So there he is doing this radio show now on Capital Extra every week, just promoting all this absolute shit that I can't stand to listen to. And this is a guy that came out during the early days of hip hop. You know, when Sugar Hill Gang first emerged with Rapper's Delight, he was right there. So he's been with the culture for the last 40 years. Really, how could anyone of that age, who's known these better times, who's lived through uh, these different eras, be content and happy off their own back with still being involved with it, with still promoting this garbage? Yeah. It's pretty clear that he's on a mission. This guy is a lifetime actor. He's famously the son of a bishop, an Anglican bishop, who used to do uh, shows on the BBC Radio 4. Uh, Westwood went to public school. There's missing years in his biography. 
Nobody knows what he was doing for a few years until he just suddenly emerges on the London scene as this up-and-coming DJ. And then he starts to get all these radio shows. And then before you know it, he's on Radio 1. He's interviewing all these influential artists. It absolutely smacks of a manufactured career. He's been put into this role. And his job has been to be the figurehead of hip-hop and to, to guide where it all goes. You know, he's white and middle class, and yet he's the voice and the go-to man for this black form of, of music and culture. Yeah, so what's going on there? It, it's, it's pretty clear that he's been given the role of, of guiding this thing. And I think the same is true of David Rodigan who is a reggae DJ. He's the, the principal sort of reggae DJ of the last 40 years in the UK. And he comes from a very similar background, a military family. He's, he was trained as an actor. He was trained as a stage actor before he came out as this uh, fully formed reggae DJ. Middle class, white, you know. And um, he gets held up as this guru and this leader of this whole scene. So isn't it interesting that you've got these two black forms of culture and music and I know there's irony in the fact that I'm a white middle class guy talking about all this, but <laughs> I was inspired by uh, Westwood and Rodigan. They certainly took me in and made me believe that I could make a living out of this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting how fate works out. But you've got you know, these two Pied Pipers of these forms of black culture, uh, and they're white and middle class. Why, why do we not have black dudes uh, as the prominent leaders of, of these scenes? I think that's a pretty pertinent question. Right. You know, this is all stuff that's very specific to the UK, and it might not mean a lot to American listeners. They might be aware of who Tim Westwood is, but there's probably similar scenarios going on in the States. I mean, there's probably stuff to know about Funkmaster Flex. I've not really dug into his background, but there's got to be a reason why he's the leader of the whole hip-hop thing in terms of DJs in the States, right? Right, right. Well, if somebody is... If somebody is a leader, you got to question in the first place why they're a leader. I mean, there's there are some people that might work their way to the top, but as we know what the top is, then you know that they must be involved somewhere in that. What you did bring something to mind. Uh, you talked about reggae a little bit, and I I did, I don't know um, with reggae music. I mean, Bob Marley, you know the kind of the creator of it in a way, uh, dies of skin cancer in the toe, which I would maybe call CIA cancer. But um, I, I don't know. I live in the same latitude as Jamaica. I've never known anybody that's got skin cancer in the toe. But do you, do you know anything about his story? Absolutely, yeah. So there was an assassination attempt on Bob Marley in 1976. Right. Uh, he was due to play this benefit gig on behalf of the Jamaican government. And the idea was they were trying to unite these different political factions within Jamaica at the time by putting on this concert. And Bob Marley was going to be the uh, figurehead of that because he was so influential at that time and so many people looked up to him. Interesting thing about Bob Marley's background is that his father, Norvell Sinclair Marley, was a British uh, naval admiral, uh, uh, not admiral, but officer, British naval officer. Uh, so what an interesting background for Bob Marley to have. So some people would look at that and say that's an indication that Bob Marley was inserted into the culture and was on some kind of agenda. It remains a possibility, I guess, but he did always strike me 
as having genuine motives and he did strike me as being somebody that was sincere maybe i've just been taken in there by another false hero but that's certainly the impression i got of him so after this assassination attempt in 1976 uh, his house got shot up and uh, some people got shot but he survived and that concert went ahead it seems that he made a bit of a, an enemy of himself to the cia uh, they didn't like the fact that he was having this influential effect on uh, people on a political basis and they wanted to get rid of him. So there's this story that after this assassination attempt, he kind of holed himself up in this compound that was heavily guarded. He had security on the gate because obviously he didn't want any more attempts on his life. But there was this one documentary filmmaker that approached him and said that he wanted to do this movie on him. And uh, he was invited into the compound to meet Bob Marley, so the story goes. And he came bearing a gift, which was a pair of boots. Now, I've heard different uh, versions of the story. In some versions, it's a pair of football boots. In uh, other versions of the story, it's a pair of cowboy boots. But either way, the story is he's got this pair of boots and he gives them to Bob Marley as a gift. And the story goes that Bob Marley put on these boots, tried them on, and then he cried out in pain. And when he examined one of the boots, there was a short length of copper wire protruding, which had pierced his toe. And we then get the story that some months afterwards, he's playing football and he just happens to break his toe. And so he goes to the hospital to get checked out. And it emerges that he's got this form of cancer, which is spreading through his toe and taking over his entire body. I should mention at this point that the guy that is said to have come bearing the gift of boots went by the name of Carl Colby, and he's still a filmmaker out there today, and he just happens to be the son of the one-time CIA, CIA director, William Colby. So that's who he was. Uh. So then Bob Marley spent a number of years living with this condition and deteriorating gradually. There's another story that he was taken to see this German doctor for a very specialised form of treatment for this rare breed of cancer. And this doctor turns out to have been a guy by the name of Issels, who was apparently one of the doctors in the concentration camps back in Nazi Germany. And he put Bob Marley through this very brutal regime of treatment involving injections directly into his spine and all kinds of sensory deprivation and other horrific things. And Bob Marley eventually succumbed to it and died on the 11th of May, 1981, day before my 11th birthday. And uh, a lot of people think that he would and was expected to have died a lot sooner. But what actually prolonged his life so long was his weed-smoking habit because part of the Rastafarian culture involves the ceremonial smoking of marijuana or ingestion of marijuana. And this is known to cure cancers and all kinds of diseases, as so much evidence in recent years has shown. So because Bob Marley was uh, you know, smoking weed every day, it may well have kept him alive for longer than it would have done. But eventually, this cancer that spread through his body was too strong and it claimed his life. So just the fact that he was taken out in such a bizarre way tends to suggest that, to a very large extent, he was the real deal, he was a loose cannon, and he was putting out messages that the establishment didn't appreciate, and they didn't want him doing that any longer. Yeah, that's kind of what I've always thought with, with little research, but just the fruits of his music were 
seemed like true true rebellion from the system, and he was <clears throat> just uh, coming from a the heart. I felt like so. It's hard. And you had Peter. You had Peter Tosh as well, who was a an associate of Bob Marley's. He put out very similar music and messages. And he, and he died in 1987 in some very suspect circumstances. It was basically a robbery on his house at this uh, small party, this small gathering of people. A couple of criminals turned up wielding guns and knives, and uh, we're told they tried to rob the place, and it was a sort of robbery gone wrong. And Peter Tosh ended up getting killed along with other people. But, you know, it's, was was that just some random attack and he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and just happened to get robbed? Or is that another example of an artist that was putting out inspiring messages that the establishment didn't want and he had to be got rid of? And, you know, you, you can't get rid of all these artists in exactly the same way. So sometimes they commit suicide in inverted commas. Sometimes they overdose in inverted commas. Sometimes they get shot. Sometimes they get robbed and stabbed. You get all these different variations on how they get taken out but the end result is always the same an artist has been removed who is no longer going to be any kind of maverick spirit making independent creative statements off their own back that's all the establishment really wants at the end of the day yep yep well um kind of wrapping it up here mark um where do you see the world heading from here in your in your worldview? in your crystal ball so to speak where do you see things going from here and it's probably not good as most people's view is but where do you see things taking off it's not looking good if i'm totally honest with you man it's not looking no. good for the future uh, where things are intended to be taken in the very near future is they want to roll out this whole transhumanist artificial intelligence smart grid internet of things yeah. that seems to be the main priority we've got 5g communication technology coming in very soon 2020 yeah. is supposed to be the big rollout of all of that and that is going to spell monumental problems for human health and also the welfare of other living things I've done a bit of research into what 5G is going to involve. It's very short wave radio transmission technology. And they're going to have to put up thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of masts in the areas where they want to roll this stuff out. So first of all, you've got this blight on the landscape of all these horrible, unnatural antennas everywhere and these street lamps that they're going to convert into 5G transmitters. And because... It's such short uh, frequency waves involved. They can only travel very short distances at a time. That's why you've got to have all these masks and you've got to keep amplifying the signal and passing it on to the next antenna. So that's a nightmare in itself. Yes. So much research has been done into the radiation that's going to be emitted from these things. They've rolled out certain test areas. There's Gateshead up in the northeast of England has been used. They're testing it out at Bristol University. And I've just heard that the West Midlands, the whole region around Birmingham in England is going to be used as a test bed for this stuff. So they're using people, regular members of society, as guinea pigs because nobody really knows uh, how this is all going to pan out. But there have already been early indications from the tests in Gateshead that it's affecting people people's health in very detrimental ways. Pregnant women have been miscarrying babies at alarming rates. People
people are contracting different forms of cancer because of the high levels of radiation. And the rollout has also been linked to the mass deaths of bees and other insects and also birds that are apparently affected by these things. Oh, and another thing about all the antennas they're putting up, they're having to chop down a whole load of trees. Why? Because trees are made of organic material and are full of moisture and they absorb the uh, transmission signals, the waves. Uh, Okay, what else is made of organic material uh, and largely made up of moisture? Hmm. Oh, that will be human beings then (laughs) who are going to also absorb these rays. So it's absolute insanity and it's criminal that governments are allowing this thing to be rolled out. And you can factor that in with all the other stuff that's happening. They want everyone to get smart meters. They're trying to get this Internet of Things established where people have devices in their homes, their fridges, their ovens, their computers, their TVs, all talking to each other and sending signals to each other. Uh, And all this information, all this data can be remotely monitored by the uh, companies involved. So there's surveillance issues going on there. We've got smart cities. We've got smart motorways. We've got smart cars. We've got smart everything. They just want everything linked up to these computer systems, communicating data and technology between themselves. This is a very unnatural way of living. We're not supposed to be living like this. What the controllers are doing is creating an artificial version of creation itself. We already have a world that's been set into place by the true creator of all things. And what the individuals, the elite ruling class working through these different uh, secret societies and all these different networks and groups are trying to do is basically emulate God's creation and come up with their own artificial world. And they're coercing all of us to be participants in it. And the whole thing is being sold to us on the basis of convenience. That's the way they always do it. You know, wouldn't it be great to have increased internet speeds, folks? Who wants to wait three minutes to download a movie when you could have it in a minute and a half? Imagine that. That's how 5G is being sold, just the convenience of faster speeds. And then all this smart stuff and uh, the cashless society. Who wants to walk around with a pocket full of cash? You could lose it. And, you know, it's far more convenient just to uh, use a contactless credit card. And the next thing will be implants, you know, uh, microchips under the skin. Just flash your microchip in front of the sensor. That's a more convenient way of paying for your stuff, isn't it? So. People, unfortunately, are being led down this path, this dead end, literally dead. Uh, And they're being seduced by the way all this technology is being promoted and marketed. And it's very dangerous to see how people are buying into it. There is a small level of awareness in terms of how dangerous 5G is going to be and other things that are going on as well. Chemtrailing, you can can put into all of that as well. Nanotechnology. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's small pockets of awareness, but the rate at which all this stuff is being rolled out demonstrates that the controllers are panicking and they're fast tracking their their plan. I mentioned earlier in the conversation that they play the long game, they plan years and decades in advance. But what they're doing now, rolling everything out very quickly, throwing everything they've got at us all at once, is not very characteristic of the way they normally like to work. It indicates that they want to do all this very, very quickly because they now want to lock us all down into this prison cell very quickly. Yes, it's because a timeline. Getting... It's a timeline they're working on, a heavy one. I can definitely... Yeah. 
yeah, advancing they're, it. They're, they're getting concerned that people are starting to pay attention and are starting to wake up. And of course, the more blatant it all becomes, the more blatant the surveillance becomes, the more blatant all the technology becomes, all the societal changes, the, the, the more likely it is that more people are going to wake up, start paying attention and asking questions. So that then drives them to roll the agenda out even quicker. So in terms of where it's all going to go, the projection doesn't look good. Because once all these antennas are in place and once we're living in this artificial Internet of Things, it's going to be very difficult to roll it back and undo the whole thing, even if the consciousness of the people exists to have the will to even want to do that, you know. So on that level, it's not looking good. But having said that, my words should not be interpreted by anyone as meaning we're all fucked. It's useless. There's no hope. There's always hope. And it's never a done deal because we are the conscious co-creators of our own experienced reality. So many studies have shown this. Even mainstream science is hinting at this being the true nature of our reality. So we create through our intent and our will, our applied will. Occultists speak of this. Alistair Crowley's doctrine spoke of uh, how the individual's will creates the reality that they experience. So it's not a done deal yet. And we still have the opportunity, large numbers of us, to apply our will and our intent to turn this situation around, head all these challenges and these obstacles off, and move forward into a world that is actually worth leaving behind to future generations, to our own kids. So people really need to start facing up to these great truths as uncomfortable as they are in large numbers and then coming together and pooling their consciousness, their will, their intent towards bringing in a better reality and a a better form of existence for all of us. And it can be done. We can have any kind of reality that we want. The occultists have just figured this out and they've successfully manipulated society and uh, the human collective psyche towards bringing in the type of reality that they want, which is evil and dark and enslaving and controlling. But it doesn't have to be that way. We could have the very opposite of that if enough of us choose that that's what we want to bring in. So we just need more people to come to these understandings and break the mind control realize that we live in a world of lies, realize that you'll never get the truth from the mainstream media and what governments tell you. You have to go seeking it from alternative sources. And uh, the role that I play and that you play and that all of us that are putting putting out information like this, whether it's through radio shows, YouTube videos, conference talks, documentaries, books, whatever, is we're just playing our small part in trying to bring that process in. And it's all we can do. Yeah. You know, one individual, you, me, anyone, cannot change the world on their own. It can't be done. But we can be a part of the process that does. And the more of us that are on this path, the more chance we stand of bringing that about. So every single individual listening to this broadcast can participate in that process and play their own part in it. And everyone should, because everyone's input makes just that little bit of difference and brings us that much closer towards bringing into reality the type of future that we want and is going to be worth living in versus the absolute nightmare that they've got planned for us. So in terms of how it pans out, it's up to us. It's really up to us. 
Well said. Well said. Yes, it's a dire situation we're in right now, uh, and it can go either way. I had uh, with the five G. We've been I've been shouting off the rooftops with it. With um, I had Max Egan, Matt Landman, and Al- Alana Freeland in a show about it. And at the end, I was like, trying to ask, you know, what can we do? Well, it wasn't a very uh, it wasn't a very uh, inspiring end because we're like, yeah, we're all kind of fucked. But if enough of us unify, the dark occultists are unified. They're unified in trying to bring in this. If everybody else unifies and drops their differences, we can make a difference. Absolutely. Exactly. I mean, you can't just give up. No. What's the alternative? You, you either uh, apply your will towards a better future and, and really concentrate on bringing that in, or you just roll over and say, we're dead. That's, that's the end of it. That's the end of humanity as we know it. Now, anyone that's got kids just cannot do that that is not an option you cannot leave that legacy for your children just say oh well yeah i saw that the world was headed to hell in a handcart and i just gave up and rolled over and let it happen that is not any kind of option you've got to fight you've got to do whatever you can even if it seems hopeless even if it looks as if you're not going to make a difference you don't know what difference you're going to make until you try and you can be sat there feeling hopeless thinking what difference can i make Imagine 10 million other people around the world all sitting there thinking, it's hopeless, what difference can I make? Now imagine every one of those 10 million people that did feel hopeless, instead doing everything they can and focusing their intent on turning this situation around. Now you've got a very different dynamic multiplied to the power of 10 million. Yep. And there it is. That, that's the answer. Absolutely. Mark, you're a wealth of knowledge. I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, giving your time and your work is is definitely passionate. And uh, how can people support your work and uh, what's next on on the plate for you? Okay, well, both of my books are available. That's Musical Truth Volume 1 and Volume 2. They are available on Amazon, so anyone that wants to order them from there, you can just find those books under Mark Devlin, Musical Truth. If anyone wants to cut Amazon out of the picture and come to me direct, uh, then I can certainly post books out all over the world. Uh, doesn't have to be just in the UK. I post books out regularly to the US and beyond. Just drop me an email if you want to do that. My email is markdevlinuk at gmail.com. My main website is markdevlin.co.uk. I've got a Spreaker account where I host all my podcasts. I've got Good Vibrations, which is conversation-based podcast similar to this. I've got The Sound of Freedom, which is a conscious music podcast. That's message music, inspiring stuff, music as it should be that uplifts and really communicates something. So that's on my Spreaker. Uh, just look for Mark Devlin on Spreaker.com. My YouTube is youtube.com slash TV. Many of my conference talks are posted up on there. In terms of what's next, next thing for me is going to be writing a novel. So I just want to take a bit of a break from factual books. I'm certainly going to be returning to that. I do want to do a book in the future, picking up on what I mentioned earlier about the origins of hip-hop culture, because I think that really needs some digging into and some fleshing out and just looking at where this whole thing came from. But before that, what's that? I said absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, nobody else has, has done this as far as I can see, and it's something that needs doing. So the next thing is going to be a novel, and I thought it would be good to try my hand at fictional writing. So it's going to be set in Oxford, my home city of Oxford, in 1990, which was quite an interesting era. There's lots of period detail that's going to be inserted into the story. And on the surface, it's going to appear to be a kind of crime thriller, like a murder thriller. But beneath the surface narrative, there's going to be all kinds of spiritual truths encoded. I'm going to be getting across concepts of natural law and free will. And it's all going to be running there underneath the narrative for perceptive people to pick up on. So it's going to be all kinds of little bits of little symbolic nods and little messages for those that can pick up on it. So that should be quite fun. That's going to be the, the next book project. And other than that, just uh, continuing to do my radio shows and my podcasts and just doing this work, man, because uh, we've got to do it. And it's all there is to do. It's what we can do. It's what we have to do. Absolutely. That's right. So I want to thank you for having me on. I've enjoyed the conversation today. You've got me ranting on a few things. It's always good when I get into rant mode because when you rant, it's from the heart. You know, yep. there's no scripts. You're, you're just really articulating what lies at the very root of you. Uh, and I've done that a few times today. So thank you for the platform for that. No worries. Freestyling it. That's the best stuff comes out that way. Absolutely. That's right. Thanks, Mark, for coming on the show. I uh, appreciate it, and I'll have to have you on again sometime. And uh, it's uh, musicaltruth.com, is that it? Musicaltruthbook.com uh, yeah. uh, is the place to go for the books. And then my main website is markdevlin.co.uk. All right, that sounds great. Thanks, Mark, for coming on, and, and thanks for chaining down the system. No worries. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Mark Devlin. Another fantastic voice and mind in this battle for truth and freedom and on planet Earth in this lockdown situation that we're in. And if you notice that every time I get good guests on, such as Mark, that we talk about the immediacy of now. Now is the time. It's not somewhere down the road. It's happening now, right underneath us. And what we get is we get pacified, pacified by entertainment. So this uh, series of shows, the Tell, Lie, Vision, Visions, is important because it really goes over the aspects of our life that we kind of enjoy. And it's unfortunate to have to bring to be a killjoy and bring you the a picture that isn't too good that tells you that even when you get home and unravel that you're being mind controlled. And it's, it's unfortunate that people um, have to go through this and there's a lot of disappointment but it really it, it paints a very different picture in your mind when you realize that the whole entertainment industry is there for your manipulation and there for the weak-minded as Desmond Wilson said in an uh, email to me who played Sanford and son Lamont uh, so you know and that's so true it's it is a um, it is it is definitely this construct that we uh, you know enjoy, but it does have to be turned down. You can still enjoy it, but it, it's it's um, you know the immediacy. So if you like uh, Mark's work, support him. You know he's doing something, and 
and that goes for you too. You can do something. We all can contribute something. And, uh, and you know, a lot of us have come from just regular situations, including myself, and we're trying to do something about it in the best way we can. So support Mark Devlin, and if you'd like to support the show, Chanit Down Radio, please help out uh, on Patreon. Loomis of Chanit Down Radio, become a subscriber. You can get not only uh, my discography, which is my, my album, uh, but also you will get access to my other podcast, The Underground. The Underground uh, so far has volume one, and it will be more of my personal thoughts on things, more of my uh, m- musical side, and uh, more more of a, a, a opinion-based show that will really get into you know the rawness of things, and, I, and, and people will enjoy that as well. And also, eventually down the line, my, my documentary, Everything Chanted Down. So, yeah, if you can help support the show, uh, we, I really appreciate it. it. It really would help out a lot because um, I'm a one-man show. But, you know, coming from this platform here and giving the truth out as best as, as I can. And thank you for continuing to listen to Chanted Down Radio. Please help spread the word at the very least because algorithms and and things out there are stopping this show from getting the traction it needs to get so um it's a tough world out there and the internet is so vast so if you if you think this is a good show and it's it is doing something positive for you please help support it by spreading the word and that's one of the greatest things that you can do and uh thank you all of you for listening thank you for chanting down the system continue to do so much love and until uh we meet again which will be pretty soon keep on chanting down now.